0: Today's session is uh, co-sponsored by my office, the Duke University Postdoctoral Association, Graduate Career Services, and Graduate Student Affairs. Scott will also be <coughs> speaking tomorrow, same time, same place. Tomorrow's topic will be interviewing skills. Um, and for a rundown of the rest of the events that we're having this semester, you can look on the online calendar at postdoc.edu. So Scott's been teaching presentation skills for over 10 years. He's spoken at NIH, Mark, NASA, and universities including Cornell, Maryland, Minnesota, and UNC Chapel Hill. He co-authored the book, Speaking About Science, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2006 and is available. And it is available out in the lobby, so you can purchase it. And that will be it will be available. Oh, it will be Presentations, I think, are difficult no matter what. (laughs) They're just plain hard. There's so many factors that go into making them clear for the audience and enjoyable for you, or at least tolerable for you. Everything from how we feel about them personally, whether we have attached some self-esteem to the presentation, the knowledge base of the audience, Mm audiovisual needs, time constraints, and I think all that is quadruply so for those of you who work in the sciences or the engineering areas, some more technical departments. Because on top of all that, you also have this intricate amount of of information to get through on very detailed levels, with sometimes a varying degree of knowledge base in the audience. So there's always this, is this enough, is this not enough? Is this the right amount? Is this, am I overdoing it? Am I being too broad? So On top of those other factors, we have another set of elements which are particularly difficult for scientists. I'm going to use that term generally, by the way. If there are some non-scientists but engineers or, or physicists or something, I kind of mean that as a more of a global term. So basically it's for very smart technical fields is another way to think about it. I've been teaching at the NIH, where it's going on 13 years now, I should update my own bio. And I have heard thousands of postdocs present. I also teach at other places. I teach for a lot of think tanks. I'm from Washington, D.C., so I work for a lot of think tanks. I also do those are research-based areas, and there are themes developing. I've noticed, and that's kind of why the book came about. Was it's called a manual for scientific presentations, and I think that's still a good approach. Meaning, I'm going to throw a bunch of tools out onto the floor to you today. And you can pick some you like. You can say, oh, Scott, that's ridiculous. And skip that one. It's not meant to brainwash you and say you have to speak like this or you're no good. That's ridiculous. But I'm going to throw out about nine major ideas and say, well, you know what? You're having trouble in this area. Or did you think about this? And you may choose to ignore it. So sometimes it's a matter of saying, well, that's what I do by default. But I haven't really given it a lot of thought. And just like we go through multiple edits when we write and submit manuscripts or abstracts, we typically get to a oral presentation and we go, I'll wing that. <laughs> we tend to kind of give it less emphasis or certainly less practice, and, we, and then that makes our anxiety go up. And another factor on top of this is we're typically not taught. Has anyone had a speech class before some kind? A couple, yeah, that's typically the ratio. It's about five percent. Yeah, yeah, I had a little something around it. But typically, we learn the hard way, trial and error. We get up, we stand, our PI says, do better, and you sit down. So (laughs) there's not a whole lot of hand holding in the process. And since that's my field, uh, communication and science communication in particular, that I thought, you know, it, it bears in mind that we should at least have some a checklist that we can kind of at least kind of go down and go, you know, yeah, I gave that some thought, and I'm either choosing to use it or augment it or adjust my talk, or I'm choosing to ignore it, and that's fine too. Again, I'm not pitching any one of these more than another, though clearly I have my favorites, and I clearly have found kind of running themes through my various work approaches as to what elements need special attention. I must also give out a caveat that I am not a scientist. I wish I was, I wish I had way back when, I wish I had thought I had, I should augment that. I wish, I, I thought I had more academic rigor at the time, but no, when I was 18, my father, who's a physician, said, you know, I was in school for another eight years after high school, and I went, oh my God. <laughs> that sounds horrible. Um, actually, it was 12, because then he got his, uh, his master's in public health. So I, I thought 12 years before life begins—that's ridiculous. So, uh, <laughs> little did I know. So, nah, I'm just going to do something else. But little did I know, I'd circle back around and spend all my time as a scientist. So, it's now, I've now put in my 12 years at, at the middle area of my career. But I've not done the bench work. So, my perspective is, in some regards, uh, from the periphery, it is communication based. But I am not a scientist myself, if that makes a difference. So we're going to go through the, what not, I have now called, there's a number of ways we could go through this. Um, I've actually, if any of you were here last year, I've actually finished <coughs> it since then. Um, just kind of mix it up a little bit. But another way we can approach this is what I am now calling nine instant improvements. Meaning that if you just give it a little thought, walk out of here, you'll already be better in some regards. So I'd like to kind of go through those in the short time that we have today. And then we'll have some follow-ups at the end. The first one we will probably begin with, which, and I do think there's a chronology to this that's helpful. Again, you don't have to, but there, I think if you kind of go in this chronology. It will help because as you get deeper in the preparation, you go, oh, I can draw on something I've already done. I find this an incredibly time-efficient way to prepare for a talk because typically we go, oh, shoot, I'm speaking tomorrow, and we don't have the the weeks to prepare or even necessarily a couple of days. So this is also a time-efficient way to say, it's fine, don't panic. I can kind of go through my checklist and I will have a clear, organized talk by the time I'm done. Oh, before we begin, I want to mention one other element that has kind of taken over all of our lives, which is the element of time, in papers, there is there's sometimes a word count, but there is not that time element of, I have to squeeze this element into a certain time period. That is a unique perspective to public speaking of any kind and for scientific presentations, which is that time frame is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. When I began 13 years ago, the average talk was about 45 minutes, and people came in with transparencies uses anymore and slides which nobody uses anymore and they would go for about 45 minutes and then it became 30 minutes became kind of the norm they say two of us go during a lunch hour talk and that kind of became the standard and now of course the 10 minute talk is the universal standard and that I wish I could say that was it that that was the shortest but I have coached one of the postdocs at NIH to go to Capitol Hill and give a presentation on cDNA microarray, and she was given five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) cover the whole topic for a group of lawmakers. And it gets worse. There's a gentleman from the ghost lab, uh, which is a funny name for one of the labs at NIH, and he drove to Philadelphia, which from D.C. is about three hours, and he was presenting for a grant, and he was given two minutes to present. (laughs) Two minutes for a grant. And they said, thank you very much, and he turned around and drove back on. So that time element is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking as more and more information is out there. There's still only 24-7 to work with. So where, where are they going to take it from? Well, I guess we'll take it from the presentations. Now everybody gets 10 minutes. One last horror story on time. I coached somebody else who was going to Singapore to give a 10-minute talk, and we got her talked about nine minutes, and she was very comfortable with that. She was doing a nice job and not rushing through. And when she got to Singapore, not her, but the lady in front of her went 10 minutes, went 11 minutes. And at 12 minutes, somebody came up on stage and ushered her <laughs> the stage. I kid you not. Took her right off. She wasn't do the was mid-sentence Oh 12 minutes. Forget. You're out. So not only is it behoove us to be disciplined for our own state of mind, our, our own sensibilities about uh, how, how effective we can be in a short amount of time. But we also don't want to go over. You know how you feel if an, a lecture goes, if I went to 11.05, 11.10 today, you go, oh my god, yes. <laughs> when is this ever going to end? So we also want to to keep it in, in mind because it's respectful to the audience, and we do not want to be cut off before we're done. We just, wow, can you imagine flying, hours, and was it a day, to Singapore, and they cut you off before you finish? I mean, that's got to be, just feel horrible. So we have to add that element in, and a number of these tools are useful for making sure that we stay in the time frame, no matter what it is, no matter what that time frame is, and for job talks, we're going to be inside 45 minutes. For a 10-minute talk, we're going to aim at nine minutes, so we're always going to be on the short It was kind of a long detour there, but I think that was worth it because it's a factor we always need to take into consideration. So the first one i like to begin with, uh, there are handouts, if you don't have one, and you'll see it right on the top. The first one i like to begin with is theme. And I call that various things in the book. I actually call it the take-home message. That's fine. Gist is fine if you know that word. G-I-S-T meaning the, the main thought. The bottom line is fine. Any of those terms, and any terms I throw out to you, it doesn't matter, really matter what we call them. The function is, is that it provides theme for the talk, and I found this to be universal, that typically we bite too off too much, more than we can chew, as we say in colloquial language. We, we approach it with too much information, and say, well, okay, now what am I going to remove to get into the time frame?" rather than I prefer one of the first tools throw out is working backwards or working inside out, meaning start with what do I want them to walk away with. And that theme should be singular, not plural, it should be one theme, and it should therefore provide a thread for everything else. Let me see if I can give you some examples, I know I can't, but prepare for it. So if I showed you this, oh, I'm going to play the lights for that. So you might think, oh, theme. Theme means maybe my favorite (coughs) conclusion point or my favorite summary. And typically, it's more effective if you think about what do those conclusion points mean collectively? What do they mean together? And this is a gentleman from the Human Genome Research Institute. And he said summary point number one, RNA interference coupled with microarray profiling are tools to study genome-wide functions GATA-3 is essential, essential for estrogen response and direct binding by GATA-3 to the Serpent A3 gene for his summary points. And he said, so this, uh, this indicates that GATA-3 appears to co-regulate with ER. GATA-3 appears to co-regulate with ER, in this case, estrogen receptor. And you'll notice that that take-home message, that theme, is not one of the conclusion points. It's kind of what they all <clears throat> indicate. Collectively, And that provides a wonderful place to begin. What, is, what do I want them to walk away with? Another way I, I sometimes pose it is, what do you want the audience to memorize? And one only is what they're going to walk away with. You can have as many conclusion points as you wish, but one theme, one takeaway, <coughs> one gist, one bottom line. Let me read you a few others. R-A-T-G, not H-A-T-G, promotes the expression of regulatory T-cells. RATG promotes the expansion, me, this, the expression, expansion of regulatory T cells. The female T cells are immunized against the Y antigen during pregnancy. The female T cells are immunized against the Y antigen during pregnancy. Oh, we got a couple of T cell examples here, and you'll notice that in those two, there are no definitions given. We don't know what necessarily what R-A-T-G, it stands for rabbit, by the way, R-A-T-G stands for at, when we're preparing. It's not, that would have been covered earlier. So another thing about the theme is we're going to actually provide it to the audience, and that's kind of like the take-home message, later on in the talk. You wouldn't begin a talk certainly with, thank you for having me, R-A-T-G, not HHD promotes the expansion of regulatory C-cells, that's, that's a stupid place to begin. So it's typically at the end or towards the end, but in terms of preparation for you as a speaker, it helps to do that first. So you don't have to provide a lot of um, parenthetical phrases or definitions because that would have been covered earlier. So notice how concise those are. Also, the more scientifically detailed, the better. You would think, since I don't have a science degree, that I would say, oh, we make it broad and... and, um, more generic, and I find quite the opposite to, is to be true, that the more scientifically specific, the more detailed, the better. Listen to the difference between these two. One is, polyboosting plays a significant role in tumor treatment. Polyboosting plays a significant role in tumor treatment. That's fine, but it's a little on the mushy side. Just like when we write, we want active verbs. It's something that grabs you, and it's kind of hard to imagine a significant role. Well, what on earth is that? And this was a a second version. Polyboosting is an effective tool for maintaining a strong interferon 8 response during anti-tumor treatment. Polyboosting is an effective tool for maintaining a strong interferon 8 response during anti-tumor treatment. certainly more specific and, to my mind, much more memorable rather than significant role. What on earth is that? But it affects, it maintains interferon 8 response that will, will, will stick with me a little bit better. So it's no way are we trying to dumb it down, we're just trying to make it focused. And that's what the theme provides. Let's see if I have, uh, oh, if some of you are clinicians, uh, here's one, uh, classification schemes of conjoined twins, this was about time to use twins, conjoined twins, are based on which areas of the body fuse and which internal organs are involved, classification schemes. Or conjoined twins are based on which area of the body fused and which internal organs are involved. That involved that talk involved a lot of case studies, and her theme was, "Well, how do you classify these when it comes time as clinicians?" So that's what it provides. It's kind of a, it's like the first, uh, it's like the first sign in the freeway to say, "Okay, here, this is eighty-five north. This is where we're going. This is what I want you to walk away with." So that's the first thing I like to provide is. For you to think about is what is the theme. As we're going today, if you'd start to jot down from your own work, think about a work in progress. If you were going to speak tomorrow or next week, what would your current take-home message or current theme be? And start jotting that down and with your permission. I'll pick on some of you later. So that would be the first set. The second would be what I call a number of things. I call it a main question. I call it what are you trying to answer for us today? I call it, uh, basically what that all boils down to is focus. What is the focus of the talk? And here the time constraint comes into play again because you may want to cover a great deal <coughs> of information, but based on time, you have to trim it back. So where the theme might be consistent, the focus, meaning what are you going to answer? What, is the, uh, what are the parameters of the talk? Is time based and it needs to be very compact. So it's not typically an entire <clears throat> hypothesis, it's not the aim of the lab. It's not even necessarily the scope of your own work. It might be more closely, more closely, more closely aligned with what are you going to answer given the time today. So it's it's kind of talk specific. And let me give you some more examples of what that would sound like. How does cytosol contribute to membrane fusion? What are the kinetics of interferon 8 levels during anti-tumor treatment? How does brain temperature affect excitation and seizure? How are conjoined twins classified? So those are some examples of the question that you would pose clearly in chronological order of the presentation, you would present that early and say, here's what I want to know, here's what the talk is going to focus on, and then we go through the data, we go through the, the findings, we go through your summary, and then we close that section, that data section, with the take home message with the theme. So they are kind of bookends to each other, which is, again, you don't have to go in this order, but the benefit of going theme focus, or focus theme, is that that's the kind of the bookends of the data section. What did I want to know? (coughs) What do I want them to walk away with? And typically those answer each other, which is another nice thematic line between the two. You'll also notice they are all questions, and I think there's a benefit to that, that the introduction tends to be a sea of of statements, of background, and it's kind of nice when you hear that question pop out, like here's what I wanted to know. As a presenter, I think you'll find that once you pose a question, you naturally start answering it, and that's just what the audience wants to know. We immediately get into methodology. We immediately get into perhaps uh, previous work in the literature that you want to cover. So it is, it's a kind of a logical beginning and early on in the presentation. I will also uh, suggest that it's a great way to. Get the question and answer period on track. This is kind of an underlying benefit of having a very (coughs) clear focus. If come question and answer, somebody says, Well, um, you know, why didn't you talk about other organs and temperature? You can very politely remind them that they'd be happy to talk to you afterwards, but today's talk was about brain temperature during excitation and seizure. What is the temperature of the brain? So that's a simple example. But we also are kind of telling the audience, here's what's up for discussion. Another example would be, perhaps, if you, you pose what are the, what's the role of T helper cells in B cell dysfunction, you're telling the audience, we're only going to discuss the role of T helper cells in B cell dysfunction, not the entirety of B cell dysfunction. In fact, you might not even be an expert on that, but your contribution to it is useful to remind the audience early, so that come question and answer time, it's, it's a nice way to keep the conversation on track. Does that make sense? Good. So those are my first two favorite places to begin. You can skip those, you go, yes, I typically do this, yes, I typically do that, that's fine, and we'll jump down with some others. Now, how that might look in presentation form would look something like this. There's nothing magic about this diagram, it's just a schematic to try to visualize it. So we haven't talked about the introduction yet, which we will, because I typically find that if you start the preparation with the introduction, and then you do focus, and then you do theme, guess what? You always go back and redo the introduction. So that's, again, kind of an inefficient use of time. And it's a little disjointed for you as a speaker to go, well, Let's start with how I would speak at the beginning, rather than what do I want to walk away with. So we'll talk about that in just a second. We've already talked about the focus being the main question. The bulk of the talk, then, in terms of time, will be the data. That's the most familiar part. It's the part we all come to hear. And the take home message there. It doesn't quite end with that, either. And we'll talk about that as a separate section. But that's one way to kind of visualize how Chronologically, that might flow. And we've already looked at those two. Now, just by a show of hands, I kind of tipped my hat as to how many, gave you a clue already, as to how we perceive time and slide count. But how many do you think we can, let's think about how many findings, how many data points, how many um, uh, steps we can get through in a 10-minute talk, so between the focus and the main question, uh, the theme, the take-home message, how many data points do you think we can comfortably get through? Anybody want, say, 1 to 3? Anybody want 3 to 5? Anyone want 5 to 8? Anyone want 8 to 10? Anybody want more than 10? Good. Okay, we're in the right ballpark. I like. My little rule of thumb is the two-minute-a-slide rule, just because the math is easy, and also by experience. By the time we do the, go through the background and do some methodology and talk through the summary slides, typically it works out to be about two minutes a slide. So that would mean that in a 10-minute talk, five is great, six is great, sevens so are kind of working it. But once we get into the double digits or the higher numbers there, we're asking for trouble because at some point then, we're just going to have to go too fast. Because there's no such thing as a simple slide. It's one of my heretical comments, and I might as well start with it relatively early, which is that there's no such thing as a simple slide. We can't say, well, as you can see, moving on. They all need our (coughs) interpretation. They need our explanation. They need us to elaborate. They need to, each slide needs to be described, every single one. So there's not just, you know, you can see this in this graph where here this expresses moving on. So there's a lot of stress on those five little slides that I've outlined here as the, probably a good number for a 10-minute talk. Because now that those slides, one, we've already reduced the, probably the typical count of them in general. And they have to start answering the main question, answering the focus, and leading the audience to the theme, to the take on. So they have to be clear. They have to be visually interesting. So it's a, it's a lot of stress we put on these five little guys. So I thought what we would do to kind of analyze some is play my favorite game, <coughs> which is called Good Slide, Bad Slide. And I have stolen these. No, I, I got permission, actually. <laughs> to use these slides in a teacher <coughs> situation. And I'll show them to you and you see whether you like them or not or what you're responding to, if you would. <coughs> I hear giggles. What's that mean? Can't read it. Can't read it. Oh, I'm sorry. You mean this part over here? <laughs> Those are the expression and deletion areas on chromosome 8. Is that better? All right, I'm sorry. Oh, you mean this part down here? Oh, those are my nucleotide positions. Very important. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Part of it is contrast. The other is even if this were in white, what's your overall effect of the slide? A little busy? Yeah, a little too much. Even if PowerPoint, and PowerPoint does do this well, we could have this fly in first and then we could have the stain fly in and then we could have our nuclear type positions. We have a little bit of a problem that at the end, we have a lot of information. We're kind of like, like a busy commercial on, on cable access that, you know, they, they fly the 800 <coughs> and you kind of go, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. So the overall effect isn't very pleasant. I would at least try to break that up into probably, at least two, probably, because it seems like this warrants a lot of attention and description and perhaps a little commentary, as certainly does the stain. And if the nuclear ties are important, at least make them legible. Here's a schematic might be common to all of you that have seen before. We doing all right so far? Yeah? Pretty common? Looks oh, too far away. Yeah, it's going well, going fine. Kaboom. <laughs> I didn't make this up. That's how it arrived. And you can imagine what happened to the talk between here and here. That poor speaker, and I remember her clearly, her head exploded. It, it was just too much because she was going in too many directions. So here's where time might be to your benefit and why we would do theme and focus first. For example, let's say we want to talk about Mick first. We have a focus, a question about Mick. We want to have a theme or a take-home message about Mick. And then you almost literally look at your watch and say, ah, I have another five minutes. Great, now I can talk about the growth factors. So the curiosity here is that even though your work may be splintered and have eight or nine or three major branches to it. In a presentation, it must be in linear form. We must learn what you have learned in, in a compressed time frame in linear form. So even though it is all interconnected, and we all understand that we get the complexity, what we don't get during a presentation is the focus, is let's talk about this first. Let's look at this pathway first, or this protein first, or this gene first, and then let's look at something else. Another way to think about it is, uh, a lot of people say we have. Let, let's look at the first half of the talk will be about structure, second half about mechanism <coughs> or functionality. So that it's a little pedantic, probably it might feel that way on from your perspective as a speaker. The benefit for the audience, though, is that we get. the the, the sum of your knowledge in linear form in a compressed time frame. And that's actually why we go to a talk anyway. We want to know exactly what you went through, but can you (coughs) shorten it up please? Because I have some more talks to get to, and I have an expertise of my own. So we are asking that of speakers. I think that's worth keeping in mind the whole time we prepare, and also when we present, which is what is the audience there for? And one reason we still fly to Singapore for attending a 10 talk, into to attend them is that we're asking those speakers, look, there's a ton of information out there. Can you please give me the highlights? Otherwise, I'll stay at home, I'll just read the articles on MedLac or something. But we go to a talk for the interaction, for the questions, and for the highlights. So when you are presenting, you, we must honor that, we must respect that, perspective of the audience, which is they want to know just kind of the the highlights and your thinking at at the time, not necessarily the whole scope of the work. So we're always giving them snapshots, we're always giving them highlights, which is slightly different from a scientific paper, and that we tend to kind of go into one area very detailed. A talk, on the other hand, are the highlights, the peaks and the graphs. So that's, I kind of went off again, but that's kind of the philosophy behind why a slide like this doesn't help us, necessarily. It doesn't help you as a speaker, and it doesn't help the audience, because we need to stay focused on certain areas in linear form before we proceed to another one. If that's so, and we have two focuses, great. Many people give job talks, and they want to show their dissertation, their work at Duke, um, maybe some um, off-campus work, and those would then be three of those hour last formats, three little talks, which would have a little focus, a little take-home message, focus, take home message, focus, take home message. So they if they are, if you think of it more modularly, in modular form, that will help tremendously. Rather than, okay, I want to talk about all my work in the lab. How's this one? Better contrast? Better contrast. Is it pretty? Yeah, it's gorgeous, isn't it? <laughs> That's something else PowerPoint does great. 13 years ago, we, you know, that was a little hand drawing. And, and now it's uh, gorgeous figures, pretty colors. What's the chance that the speaker can get through this in two minutes? The flip side of the two-minute slide rule, which is, if it takes longer than two minutes to talk about, it probably needs to be broken up. Because if if you can imagine, actually imagine if I sat quietly, even for two minutes, it's an incredibly long time, and yet I would still be talking about the the pathways and all the interconnected proteins. So even, here's another, my second heretical point. If it doesn't pertain to the main question, to the focus of the talk, it doesn't belong on the slide. I know that's a little, that's kind of a tough swill, pill to swallow. If it doesn't pertain to the main question, the focus of the day, then it doesn't belong on the slide, because it's confusing. At some point, we have to stop this cascade. We have to, we know it's interconnected. Where, where are you going to stop it? So even if, and I, this lady was was very disciplined and it hurt her, it was like cutting off her arm. She said, "Oh, but you know, what about my friend Ras over here? And, And then she said, but you know what, for this talk, it's really about the ITAM chain, and so I'm going to focus it to this part. So it took a little discipline on her part to say, all right, this talk only, given the time I have, I'm just going to talk about the ITAM chain. And certainly a better uh, slide visually, and certainly thematically more appropriate than the entire complication here. Now there's another possibility, and I get this comment a lot, which is, but what if I want to show that and then go to the other car? Sure, you can, but notice that already you're going, hey, that, you know, lat, I work with lat, and then suddenly you're, you're zipping it out of the picture. So it, you could, it's also two slides, and I'm not sure that's how you would want to lead into it, but think about it as more, I think a better filter is the, if it helps answer the main question, great, fantastic, it belongs on the slide. If it's a little detour, it's a little on the boundaries of what you're focusing on today, leave it off the slide. <coughs> I know, a little heretical. How's this one? First impressions? Simple? All right, I'll ask it to you this way. Is that what their domains look like? Are they square boxes with pretty colors? (laughs) Of course not. But watch this. Is that what these components look like? Of course not. So just because PowerPoint can do pretty things, one thing I like greatly about this one is saying it's not about the shapes and the colors, it's how to distinguish the n terminus and the C-terminist the, uh, sorry, the the, the, the different in So that's what saying, look, this has a, the point of this is not what it looks like, it's to help you visualize the differences. And I think that is always a good thing to bear in mind when we're putting our slides together, and actually something I would suggest as a tool, which is that you don't leave a slide until you say, almost in your mind, you're saying, this is what I hope you get out of it. When you're preparing, say, what do I hope they get out of this? Why am I showing them this? What do I want them to Why would I bother if I have just a few slides anyway? What's the point of this that has to be visually represented? So that's a good little filter for yourself to get into, and it's a good habit to, on your own, start thinking, what do I want them to get out of this? What's my commentary? What's my analysis? I'm from Washington, so I call it spin. What's the spin on this slide? What's the point of putting it up there if it doesn't have some meaning to you. There's a bunch of ways to phrase it. You can say, so this indicates this to me, that this is relevant here, this is the significance of these findings that led us to the next set of experimentation. (coughs) So I would pose that you don't leave a slide until you've kind of told the audience what they're supposed to get out of it. That's a good way to think about it. And one reason I like about this is at least this has been Taking a, a stab at saying it's not about the colors and the forms, it's about the different terms. For example, this one. Now, here's another philosophical point. Very pretty slide. I remember this lady from the summer. She was so excited. She goes, God, I got fantastic data. Look at this. I said, That's beautiful, I guess. <laughs> But it poses the philosophical point, should a slide be able to stand alone? Should we be able to put something like this and say, see, great data, and walk away, I go get a cup of coffee, come back, go, Okay, moving on. Of course not. That would be silly. But yet we kind of do some version of that without that commentary, without that spin, without saying, so see, the way these uh, neuronal cells at zero day are depleted by 14 days. So that indicates to me the effect of tubulin alpha. I clearly don't know what I'm talking about. But, um, <laughs> you, you get the, it needs that little commentary. It needs that spin. Every single slide. Because we cannot ask it to do it without you. And that goes true for posters as well, by the way. That we tend to say, oh well, you know, it's up there. I'll put a bunch of words on it then I'll just, I'll be the narrator. Rather than, there's some nice visual images to help you along. Oh, I could, I heard one gasp or sigh. <laughs> Clearly too much, right? But, and we would all know better than this, correct? Right, except, I'm going to skip one slide here. Oh, no, no. What, not a whole lot of difference between the two, is there? Between this, big chart numbers, big, big chart of numbers, big chart of numbers. So we might easily say, oh yeah, I would never do a chart with numbers on it. <laughs> and then when we come to visually represent it, we go, uh, I better put in all that, all those numbers. And why would we do that as speakers? What's the benefit of this? <laughs> or this. I'm certainly not going to talk about all of them as a speaker am I? I've got a hope not. So why do we put stuff up like that? Ego. <laughs> that's <laughs> a, that's <laughs> one way to think about Ego, yeah. And, and not, not so pejoratively okay. as yeah, exactly. We did the work. He said, see? Work my tail off of this stuff. <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. So I'm not necessarily trying to talk you out of charts, but perhaps the presentation of them. Meaning that if you're going to talk here, I'll show you, no one coming up. If you're only going to talk about certain viruses, highlight them. Say, look, I still did the work, but just focus on these three, please. Knowing, and here's the philosophical element of it again, in a presentation, if you, the audience, come for highlights, then you the speaker have to provide highlights know that we are here to learn at the same pace at the same time in the same place same pace same time in the same place meaning that there's only one chance for you the speaker to be clear and one chance for the audience to get it. there is no going back in a paper that's is kind of interesting because in a paper, the, the rate of information flow is up to the reader. The reader can take a coffee break. The reader can say, what? Figure 1.1, where, where's that? And go back and look at it, squint at it, then go back to the text. They are controlling the rate of information flow. In a presentation, it's the speaker, not the audience. So it's your job to say, you know what? This is about the right information that needs to be doled out. This is about a digestible chunk that needs to be doled out. I want to show that I've done all the work, but I really just want you to focus on these three. Because otherwise, without a little bit of um, spoon feeding, a little bit of um, of hand-holding through the process, we get stuff like this. And this was just a couple of weeks ago. And the curiosity of this, which was a... uh, how a survey was put together, was only these parts were the relevant elements that she added, meaning these the co- comorbidity scores and the depression scores. Those were the part of that affected her main question, that affected her work. So in a way, sure, do we need all that? No. Did she want to say, I did the work? Okay, fine. Ego, because it's done with conflict but I I wouldn't be that mean about it. But you might want to say, yes, I worked really hard. But at least get us to this point as quickly, as visually interesting, and as as directly as possible. That's the benefit. Because the audience is coming for highlights, because we have to learn together. If we get too complicated a slide, we're all going to go in different places. We're all going to jump to different areas. How's this one? That's I see a few nodding heads. I agree with <clears> that. Not too bad. I do like that it's respectful. The, the speaker is at least making an attempt to say, "I wish I had control over this. I I, didn't, I could remove those the ovals." <coughs> but imagine without the ovals. You go. So what are the important lanes there? And at least they're saying, "Look, look at these two here and these and the non." Acidic lipids lanes. So I find that at least a respectful approach to say, look here, look here, look here. I know it's busy. Look here. Good. What's this one crying for? Color. One thing PowerPoint does well, let's, let's put it to use rather than clip art from a paper. That's what this one tends to look like. I would also recommend that particularly in a talk, that since there's one chance to be clear for you, the speaker, and one chance for the audience to get it, there is no going back, that the legend corresponds with how graphs terminate. In other words, it would be helpful to the, has the control match there, that we would switch this one around so that this mutant is above the other. So we kind of read, we're reading down the legend and down the survival rates. That just makes it a lot easier. And if those can, with colors correspond it's even better so that at a glance we get it, it may also be helpful to this is something else the PowerPoint as well is that it <coughs> can build in you might want to show controls first and then as each mutant survival changes that we can look at those one at a time stay so that we can stay together such as that wait I've got some lousy color schemes in my examples so you, you may not appreciate the the big <laughs> green bar up there at the top and maybe that's too much black, but that is a more, let's see the, the legend's not correct, uh, what I'm suggesting would be correct, but it's certainly a, an, an attempt at making the graph a little clearer I showed this one because he's put in the build quite nicely, I remember his, his talk also of a few weeks ago And then he wanted to show all that together, which got a little complicated. And then he kind of hinted at the main question, which is, we're kind of getting into another factor, which is how much text do we put on slides. But I wanted to show this because sometimes the focus can be exact DNA pressure of this capsid is unknown, but it's not quite a question. It's kind of a a vague something we don't know about. And I find that kind of a harder thing to fathom than what is the DNA pressure of sigma capsid at, under certain conditions. Right. I forget what he's doing at that. But if we want to, if he actually puts it more in question form, that's a little clearer for us to say, what are you looking for, rather than unknown. That's a little on the vague side. So even the the focus, the main question, we want as detailed and specific as possible. Don't be afraid about boring people with details. (coughs) Don't be afraid of boring people with details. The details is the good stuff. We love that stuff. We may need some context for it, but we want to get to your work, the stuff that you're really enthusiastic about. We want to get to that basically as quickly as possible. So the... The vague terms don't necessarily help us get there. I'm sorry, I forgot this was here. Same, same, same talk. There's, let's talk more about that text element. Very quickly, we can kind of grab the gist of some of the points on the left in text. But I asked the speaker, what's that little graph you have down on the bottom? It's an interesting visualization, and you'll notice that that's basically the same elements that are covered here, and I said, could you, do you need that text, he said, no, I said, well then, is there a chance that would you be reminded if it were in this form only, and I said, give it a try, so he did this, and he knew exactly what to say about it. you may find this yourself that we tend to put in text not necessarily for the audience. We tend to put it in for ourselves as cue cards. As to go, phew, now I'm never going to forget um, CD55. Because I might forget. <laughs> if I work with it all day long, what if I forgot? <laughs> I, I understand that. Because we go, Because you know, as I mentioned at the very, very beginning, there's so much going on in a presentation that we say, please, God, don't let me forget stuff. <laughs> so there is a tendency to do that. However, I would recommend there are other ways to remind yourself that are more relevant for the audience. And this one seemed to work quite well for him. So it wasn't the text that he was actually referring to. He wanted to kind of flow, uh, follow the flow of rituximab and how it functioned towards the target cell. And he could do that quite easily. So he had a visual cue to remind him. And then the audience got a better image of of what he was talking about. It was certainly, I think, a better slide, I think we might all agree, than this one, which tends to be text heavy. Now that might be a huge jump for you. You might say, oh, Scott, don't make me take all those words off. Don't make me do it like that. And that's fair enough. But at least then we should go back to bullet points, which are little reminders for you and not full sentences. Biggest clue in the world, take the verbs out. As soon as we get into verbs, you're asking us to read. You're asking yourself to read. You're saying, this is now a sentence. So therefore, we read sentences. And we get off on the wrong foot. There's a number of reasons for that. Let me see if I have my next slide after that. Oh, yeah. Meaning, is that the first one? Sorry. There. Meaning that as suddenly we have to start reading, what are you no longer doing to the speaker? Listen. Here's a great test. We can use this one. Even. When you go, I was watching the news last night, and they still have it. And on 9-11, CNN started what they call in the business, the crawl which is along the bottom, they have a sentence about something completely different. And test yourself tonight. Or if you have a TV in your office. And they're all using it now, Fox, NBC. They even have ticket tape, how poorly your stocks are doing. And sports scores they have on there now. And test yourself tonight and see if you can follow the text and listen to the presenter at the same time. It's impossible. At some point, you go and you pick one of them. and it's not necessarily what you prefer. Many, many studies have been done to people: prefer it, hearing information auditorily, or do they prefer to read it visually? And you can, you might choose one or the other for whatever reason. But it's not that; it's the dual stimuli that we cannot handle. So no one in the world can say, "I'm reading this at the perfect pace." They're scrolling it at exactly the same pace I read. Right? And I'm listening to the anchor person and I'm following them at the same time. At some time point, your brain will go, let's just follow this one for a minute. It's kind of like reading the paper and listening to music. You can't hum the words to the tune and and read the newspaper at the same time either. So it's not about which you prefer, it's that you're suddenly asking the audience to choose. And that's where we get into trouble. We're doing quite well. We're all together. We're at the same pace, same time, same place. We're learning, and then we put this up. And suddenly, you're saying, all right, now you're on your own. I'm either going to read it to you. A number of new liquid dystrophy syndromes have recently been described, and I'm like, ridiculous. that's incredibly boring. Or I hope that we read at the same pace. Go. That's not very effective either. So I would also pose for these. <coughs> Take out those whole sentences, make those bullet points. You're gonna know what to say. You are gonna know what to say. This is your work. It's going to trigger some comment from you. And that can be isolated and go back to bullet points and not <laughs> what I've now dubbed bullet sentences. Meaning, I know I'll write a sentence, and put a dot next to it, and it becomes a bullet point. No, 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 no. Go back to taking as few words as possible. Because remember, it's for you. It's not for the audience. It's their triggers for you. So whatever that the least amount of trigger you need, go with that. Because otherwise, the other curiosity is that we don't speak like this. We don't say here. We describe a new dysmyelinating leukodystrophy. We we don't talk like that. We don't talk in was there a nevertheless on yeah, nevertheless. We typically don't speak like that. It's how we write. But we're. We typically don't speak like that. So I would kind of wean you away from heavy text slides. And another curiosity, let me see if I have one more example. Those of you who are native English speakers, glance at this a little bit. And those of you who are non-native English speakers, as we discussed yesterday in a different seminar, we are very strict about how the English language is written incredibly strict, and there are, there's very little room for movement in our acceptance about it. If we speak the English language, we're much more forgiving. If you speak it, we're much more forgiving. So in a way, you're saying, instead of judging me by the more flexible rules of the spoken language, if you put up a lot of text heavy slides, you're saying, actually, why don't you judge me by a far more strict and rigid criteria, which is how it's written. Any native English speakers catch something up here yet? Typos. We are rigid about typos. So much so that we'll look at this and go, changes. I can't listen to this talk. <laughs> it's not really fair, I'm not being literal, but we do look at that and go, ugh, didn't you, didn't you run a spell check or anything? So we have these really critical rules about how it's written. It's, 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 and it really is unfair of us, but we do it. So in an effort to say, I know, I'll write it all up there and be clearer, it's not. Because we're kind of saying, oh, we're going to judge this as a paper. <laughs> as a paper, well then. And then the, the whole <coughs> criteria changes. And I also oppose this. Every single one of us, no matter of our ability and our fluency in English, every single one of us speak better than we read. We speak better than we read. And particularly in a public speaking situation, we all would rather listen than read. So I would pose to you that for those myriad of reasons, we need to start weaning away from the text, weaning away as much as possible. First clue, take those verbs out. Go back to bullet points. Make them, if you need them as reminders, give them little reminders for yourself, but not necessarily the full text. Another possibility, I love this one, is that we can think of more creative visual ways to go through our summaries or our conclusion points, which is typically a very text-heavy area. So just because we go, okay, less text, except in the summary, There, I'm going to put everything out. But instead, think, well, how can I visually represent that? Think about it this way. The summary should be a review, a review of stuff that's already been covered, not new information. I swear, I don't know why, but, well, I do know why. But whenever I get to something like this, and somebody goes through a, a summary this thick, it seems to me that one of those points was not covered in the talk. And it's only because we kind of get to this list. We go, is that, did we really cover that? I kind of forgot that part. Because it's, it's now spelled out in different language. It's not as visually representative. And at least what I like about this one is uh, the friend, the lefty mutant, um, is it's reminding us visually of the ligands, glycine area, and then the phenotype. So that's kind of a nice option is that I want to pose that you don't have to put summaries in full text words. There's not a rule out there that says all scientific talks have to end with full exhaustive lists of conclusion points. There are other ways to remind the audience what you've covered. And I'm particularly fond of the more visual ones. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. That was slide two. Whatever it is. Now, our friend who um, went to... Philadelphia, and he was given two minutes to talk. You can imagine how many slides he took with it. One. And I thought, you know, I'm a deal for that gentleman, but there's a wonderful exercise there, which is, and I, and I have dubbed it now in honor because he went for a grant, I've dubbed it the money slide. And I said, you know, there's a, there's a, that's really a wonderful kind of a uh, motif, that we should all know what the money slide is, no matter how many we have. And I would pose that as the best place to begin our our audiovisual support process, which is what is the single most important image in your slide deck? And I would start with that. So in terms of our working backwards, I would say... What's that theme? What's my focus? Step three, I would say, what's my money slide? What's the one I hope that they get above all others? What's the one if they're taking a nap that they wake up for? What's the one if I have to drive to Philadelphia for a grant? What am I going to take? No matter how many you eventually have, even if you have 27 slides in your deck, you should still have one money slide. This provides a number of functions. One, we will then build towards it in terms of our storytelling. We will also give it an enormous amount of time and description because it's our money slide. You will naturally say, I love this one. (laughs) If not, in verbs, at (coughs) least in, in energy and enthusiasm. And then where it's placed doesn't really matter. It could be early and then you do justifications or confirmational studies, that's fine. It could be towards the end and you are building up to it. It could be in the middle, where position is doesn't matter. It could be slide number one, 13, 17, 27. Or in our 10 minute slide model, it can be any of those five or six positions. But having one will help your delivery, It will help the audience get it. It typically leads very nicely into the theme and the take home message. And it's a better way to start our slide count. It's so much easier to add to than to subtract from. So instead of starting with a 45-minute talk and saying, oh, what do I take out, do it the opposite. Start with one and go, how much time do I have? 20 minutes? Great. I got 12 other pictures I can add around my money slide, 10 to 12 pictures. Now, how am I going to set that up? Do I want some in advance? Do I want some afterwards? And then you have much more flexibility, back to that modular element. You're kind of just moving it around. I think that's going to help you in your delivery. And then something curious happened. Once I started to give it as an exercise, people started to cheat. (laughs) They said, oh, money slide, huh? And they would bring in stuff like this. And that's, yes, that's one slide, but it's a very complicated, mushy slide. It's basically trying to compare four things when the maximum should be about two. So we want to make that, if it's going to be your money slide, give it its own screen time. Here's another example. Meaning she came in with this one as her money slide. Not that. that's cheating again. That's three money slides. And I pinned her to the ground I said, which one is more important? Is it the graph, the dappy stain, or the development slide? She said, oh, all right, my dappy stain. Much more visually interesting, much easier for her to describe, more scientifically relevant because this <coughs> is the good stuff. This is where her work pivoted. It was the linchpin. So Those are a number of benefits to saying, okay, what what's my single most important image? Give it a little bit of space. Give it extra description. Make sure they get that one before moving on. Or as, and plus, it helps you lead up to it. So it's a nice storytelling tool. As you are doodling there, you might want to start scribbling down what would be your slide. What would that look like? I often give it away in uh, as an exercise. We don't have the time today, but I'll show you some from over the years. And people have doodled very nicely. They're just, sometimes they're bar graphs. Sometimes they're just stained slices. So, typically, they are not schematics. Typically not, unless it's a design study. You want to say, here's what I'm designing, here's what I'm posing. Sometimes for chalk talks or, or proposal talks, there isn't necessarily data, but there's still a money slide. Something you want to click in the audience to go, yeah, that's worth funding. Let's do that. That's a good one. It's a great idea. So it's always, again, think about snapshots, think about what's going to make it clear for them. What's going to make it clear? I also love transparencies because I, I got this idea flying to Boston once, and I said, you know what? It's like you need to be able to go into a bar and draw your slide on a bed nap, <laughs> a little beverage napkin or a, a Starbucks coffee napkin, because it is so clear in your head that it doesn't matter how it's represented. And that's the other benefit of the money slide. It should be already in your head. And yes, there will be visual images that help us along the way. That will also help that syndrome, which tends to happen that we tend to think that PowerPoint is in charge of the show. That this is, here's here's my work, and not our scientific mental process. So if there's an element I would throw in about, particularly as it revolves around slides, we tend to have the slideshow and the narrating scientist who's over here in the corner kind of describing what's going on. And I would suggest a paradigm shift, which is that I would much rather hear about your mental scientific method, your thought processes, and every once in a while you have a cool picture show, rather than the, the drone of PowerPoint. So it's a nice tool, but it needs to be leashed. <laughs> it tends to run away with the show. And even if you don't have complete control over the slide decks, there's a few things you can do on your own. And I'm gonna present that right now. We're not gonna talk about a lot of delivery issues today, but there is one I would like to point out, because I think that's if I never see you again for the rest of your life, that there's one I want you to kind of just Really consider and really filter through and see what the benefits might be. I'm now going to impersonate two speakers. And then we'll ask you a question when we're done. Make sure I'm on the right slide. Here's speaker number one. Here's our false positive rates between our FGA, our future, future generated algorithm. In red plotted against Gene Splicer in blue. And you can see a shift here in the sensitivity. That came to be about 10% in false positive rates, and we were particularly thrilled with that result. That was very significant to us. It meant we were doing quite well with our our FGA. Okay, that was speaker number one. Here's speaker number two. Next, I want to show you the false positive rates where we've plotted our feature-generated algorithm against gene splicer. FGA is in red, the gene splicer is in blue, and notice a shift here in sensitivity. That equated to about 10%, and we were particularly thrilled with that result. That was a significant change in false positive rates for us. So we were pleased with FGA. That was Peter number two. Now here's the question. Which speaker appeared to know their material and their science better. Speaker number one. Couple. Speaker number two. Right. Speaker number one, more time. a Little band of people. Speaker number two. Okay. Clearly, majority of number two. What did speaker number two do? I tried to use the same words. What did speaker number two do that speaker number one did not? and apparently to at least the majority of people to go to that. Limited focus. I'm sorry? Limited focus, just switch to the Limited the focus? How was that so? Well, so instead it, of showing the slide while you're talking about it, talk about it a little bit and then show what's True, good, good, yes, exactly. One tech, and that's probably the biggest technique of that, which is a little bit of what I call preview. A little bit of preview, meaning let the audience know that you know what's coming next. It doesn't need to be as much as I did, by the way. It could be a simple matter of next we look at false positive rates. (coughs) So I'm not suggesting you kind of go on a monologue for 20 minutes. But it is helpful to to signal to the audience that even if the power goes out, and how many times does that happen? unbelievable, Unbelievable in this day and age that projectors blow, or bulbs go, or power one goes out and we go, oh my god, I can't talk. <coughs> and, and I would feel the same way. How could I get through good slide, bad slide with the power out? So I also have that hope. But the element that we, you are signaling to the audience that you know what's coming up. <coughs> I'd love to hear the comments actually in a minute about speaker number one. The speaker number one's appears it's not true, same words, same knowledge. It appears that speaker number one needs the slide to talk. And that's the downfall. It appears that it goes, oh, right, false positive. When it should be closer to, I know what's coming next, I've only got six or seven slides. In here. And if you can't remember them, you jot them down on a nice little cards to say, All right, what's next? It's because this is certainly less intrusive. Clearly, I love it. I have my all-out my examples on But this is less intrusive than this, and less intrusive than that for a cue card or a reminder. So see if you can start making PowerPoint work for you a little bit. Um, any comments from those who preferred speaker number one? Because that's a, that's a, you have a valid concerns if you want to share them at this time. Yes, ma'am. It just felt that it might be a little bit for the audience if you don't really uh, show the press that you have a second to absorb the information before you start speaking about it. Or maybe just the sentences that you did, it was just kind of surprising. Possibly. I probably could have described it better. Yeah, that's a very valid point. I I could have certainly described it better. The curiosity, and that. Perhaps, to me, the issue inside the question is when you, let me ask, I don't know if this will still work because you've seen it. (laughs) Um, Let's try When I put this graph up, typically, where do you look? Where do you typically look? The lines? I heard lines in the other comments. A legend? Oh, that's interesting. And there's part of the problem is we nobody quite agrees on where to look. So one benefit of this would be to say, I want you to pay attention to certain areas. The other curiosity is that none of you mentioned the x y axes. And typically, when we say, well, we want people to get their bearings on the slide, we want them to look there and say, you see what I'm plotting here? I'm plotting false positive rates and sensitivity. But yet nobody mentioned that as where they looked was the actual X, Y axis. So it's a curiosity of where, where do we want them to look? Another option is that we kind of do it in stages, which I'm completely fond of, which, oh, I don't have axes, I'll change it next time. But that perhaps this, the graph itself, is gone. And we just <coughs> see false positive rates that will remind you, oh, you know what, I want to talk a little bit about this. Because typically, we are trained like monkeys that when we see a variance in data, we go, hey, what's this, or the bar graph, um, here, the wild type in our mutants. We go, hey, 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 discrepancy, what's up with that? Because that's where we're kind of trained to go, that must be significant. So we typically, as audience members, jump to the peaks. The bar graphs, the the gaps, the, where something is uh, expressed and where it isn't expressed. Typically, I'm not saying all the time, but that's why it's helpful to give a little bit of preview because most of the time we're <coughs> jumping either all around or we jump to the wrong. To we go, hey, we describe that place and we may not want to describe that yet. Just make sure that it's in in your control, and there's a bunch of techniques we can use for that. One being titles, one being verbiage. It could even be, remember those big graphs of charts, in fact, let's go back. It could even be, if your PI says, use this slide. Oh, wow, I forgot how yeah. Even if your PI says, use this slide, or you're fired, use this slide. <laughs> but no, you can also say, look, the next graph is very complicated. It's a bunch of arsenic levels in wells around the United States, I want you just to look at Michigan, and more importantly, the number of wells in the far right-hand corner, this one over here. So even visually, you can kind of go, careful, everybody. Don't. It's not the whole slide. It's this part. So as long as you are controlling it, if the slide is working for you, and more importantly, if the slide's working for the audience. And I think that's the fact that we tend to leave out. We go, yeah, it's up there. I did. Rather than, is it useful to them? Is it useful for that? Thank you, that was a great discussion. Um, And certainly something to consider. How can we control PowerPoint a little bit better so that you don't have to do this? (laughs) All right, where are we? Great. We have now covered five of the elements in terms of how we could improve immediately. Theme, focus, slide count simple images with minimal text, and some form of PowerPoint control. The next one I want to discuss is probably the most difficult, and it's actually the, the hardest pitch on my part, and and probably I was where I get the most resistance from workshop groups, and I understand. It boils down to what's the purpose of an introduction? An introduction typically, goes like this. Whoops. where's that? Like this. It typically goes, thank you for having me. I'd like to discuss cancer, more specifically lung cancer. There are 174,400 new cases in 2006. 1,770 are women. You kind of get the idea of this, right? So there's one option that we start with statistics. Watch what this one does, by the way. And that's actually a point about the slides. If you ever notice that PowerPoint did something cool, they're no longer listening to what you're talking about. (laughs) Because everyone's like, how do you get that throb thing to happen? (laughs) So I favor the, the minimalist. PowerPoint, I mean, just have it come in and go out. But there's that one. You see that one that? This one cracks me up too. The one that the words come in and they screech to a halt and then they back out and break. What's <laughs> <laughs> the point of that? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this, in terms of introductions, this is a typical place you might begin, or are tempted to begin, which is the statistics of a disease. However, I would pose you this: what it's missing is an attempt to talk to the audience's knowledge base. Typically, if we are also lung cancer epidemiologists, we know this, it is not necessarily where our work lies. It might be closer to what element of lung cancer are we looking at, specifically where are the hot spots And I would suggest that an introduction is always most effective if you approach the problems that you face collectively with the audience. That is more interesting than definitions or statistics or early schematics. That's an early schematics. Let's look at a few other examples of those. So this would be one possibility. Then there's early schematics, which don't mean anything yet. Or, back to the other model, the lady said, well, OK, well, what if I jettisoned the epidemiology one and the statistics and instead, instead focused on non small cell lung cancer? I said, That's fine. Is that what the audience is? Do they all study that? She said, Yes. And I said, Do they study something else more specifically? She said, Yes. I said, What is it? She said, Endocarcinoma. Typo again, by the way. Adenocarcinoma with a typo. So I said, well then why don't we begin closer to the problems of adenocarcinoma, since that's what you share with the audience, and that's where the introduction should begin. There's a problem with my philosophy, which is it has to change for every audience. That's the problem. The benefit is that it changes for every audience, meaning that if you are adapting not your work, but the context of your work, to the knowledge base of those in attendance. It is unbelievably respectful to say, even a stab at saying, okay, here are the major areas of adenocarcinoma we're focusing on, and I want to look at, I will eventually get to the role of SMAD3 and 4 in the EKG pathway. So that is certainly more respectful to a group of of of, um, adenocarcinoma experts than to say, you know, there's a whole lot of people that die of it and a lot of them are women and some are non-smokers because it's not the knowledge base. If you go to Capitol Hill, what a fantastic place to start. The knowledge base might be much closer to statistical uh, information in a broader scope. The problem is though, you're right, every time you talk, you talk to your lab, it's one knowledge base. You talk to outside the lab, but in the department, it's a broader knowledge base. You leave campus and talk for a job talk, and it's a different knowledge base again. But I think it's that effort is well worth the time to say, what do we collectively, what are we collectively working on? I call it common ground just as a catchphrase, but I mean that as what are we collectively working on of which I am going to provide a contribution today. You don't have to r- remember this, it wasn't my take on this. But at the very beginning, I posed the problems of scientific presentations. So at least, hopefully, part of you said, now I'll stick around. This affects my work. I, too, have problems with scientific presentations. Let's hear what Scott's contribution is. Can I solve the issues of scientific presentations today? Impossible impossible. I can't even do it and I'm an expert for 13 years and written a book and I teach every day. I still don't have all the answers. So I address it to you as we're collectively working on this. You throw in your opinions and expertise. I'll throw in my opinions and expertise and we collectively get a little smarter. Sometimes I think of it as, I've my up here. Sometimes I think a good introduction should be like, a Rubik's Cube, you remember these things? It's kind of like saying, okay, here's the Rubik's Cube of adenocarcinoma. But today, you may be working on yellow, you may be working on white, green. Today, I'm just going to discuss how blue lines up on one side. So that's another visual way of saying, how can you focus, make your work relevant to the work of the audience? Ooh, that was a good one. I'll say that I'm going to I very make your work relevant to the work of the audience. And that does take a little more mental discipline than saying, well, here's the slide I usually start with. It doesn't mean the slide is wrong. It does mean make sure you're angling it for what they're working on on a daily basis. Let's look at the time. Okay, let's look at. uh, A little template I put together. These are also printed in your handouts on the back side. This is flawed, major caveat, this is flawed. It is not perfect. It is an attempt to say that a good introduction, in my opinion, should be about the concepts, not about the details or about the schematics or the drawings or the background. In other words, the background should be conceptual. And I think a more accurate and respectful introduction that therefore addresses what's bugging. Let's say say you're going to talk to your lab. And you said, here's the issues we face in the lab. Here's my candidate. And the critical, critical, most important question you can answer in an introduction is, why is your candidate logical? Why is your solution logical? Why does that make the most sense to you? And then the focus being what do you specifically need to know to further the hypothesis of your candidate? Well, awkwardly phrase it, But why would your, why, what do you specifically need to know to prove that the candidate is a good solution? So to me, over the years, boil down, a good introduction boils down to the answer to these four questions when you talk to the lab. And I think that's worth pondering a little bit. say, am I approaching their knowledge base typically through the problem? That's a better connection than definition or statistics. What's a, what's a good solution or solutions, plural? Why? Why are you posing that? And then If that's all logical, what do you need to know to promote that idea? What do you specifically need to know? And then, once I know that you are interested in the variant on domain 4, variant uh, 230G, let me back up one, uh, G230E on domain 3, then I'm completely available for schematics and drawings and data because I know where the focus is, I know where you're going. Conceptually, it makes sense to me. So I'm not really trying to change introductions as they used to be. What I'm kind of suggesting is that we need to revisit what introductions do, what's their purpose. And to me, it's much closer to affecting their work quickly and providing your contribution. How does your work make your work relevant relevant to their work? incredibly respectful. You jump to the quick, you get to the scientific aspect of it. Particularly when you're talking to the scientists. If you talk to a broader group, sure, you've got to back up a little bit. And that's why I've two templates on the, on your worksheet there. The second being, then if that's the case, you want to, If let's say you talk to an international conference, you want to say, well, what's bugging us in the field? Perhaps they're not in, uh Adenocarcinoma experts, perhaps they're non-small, non-small lung cancer, lung cell cancer experts, and that's where you begin. Problems of non-small cell lung cancer types, of which you're going to discuss adenocarcinoma, of which you're going to discuss a certain pathway, of which that you want to know what's the role uh, and effect of MADS 3 and 4 So You'll notice that the last four questions are the same. We've already done those for the lab. It's just kind of a matter of saying, keep that part. Keep your work. Keep its relevance. Keep your main focus. But give it a little more context for a broader one. I think I'll leave it at that because I think that's a, that's a lot to chew and I, and I realize this is probably my most heretical point of the day, which is we kind of, I would suggest we re-look at introductions. I, I, Every time I hear a talk, there's something askew, not even wrong, askew (coughs) with the introduction when I say, but who are you talking to? Every time I say, but who, what are those experts there for? They say, oh, well, they already know that. Well, well, great. Then don't say it. Get to the point. Get to the good stuff. And most introductions start too wrong. Or the opposite. They'll jump right into the role of factor five and not give us the reason why factor five is a good candidate. And what are we trying to solve? Why is that a good model? Or what will we gleam from? So, typically I see one of the two. There is, the introduction is askew because it's either too broad, or we've jumped way down to the micro level. And we've not said, wait a minute, let's give this a little context. I will leave introductions, but I will pose that as, my most heretical comment of the day. Uh, Future plans. And this would be our sixth And that is that typically, I think, future plans are more effective if they're... (laughs) It always seems to me that if you give one future plan, it's stingy. And if you give four, it's schizophrenic. (laughs) And oddly enough, two or three seem to be just about right. It's like that Goldilocks tale of the porridge is just right. It's two or three seem to be about the right number of future plans that you should pose. That would be in what I call, if you remember that pyramid uh, hourglass format, that, that's what I call the resolution section, <coughs> meaning that we don't want to get to a talk and say, uh, insect salivary proteins protect against parasite transmission, thank you for having me. That, that's kind of a lousy abrupt end. We always want to broaden back out. Meaning what would you do, even if the project's over, what would you do to further the study? What would be your advances? What would be the directions you would go in? And typically two or three is about that. Right. I would recommend, and this goes right into our next toolbox, is that we know how to end. I can't tell you how many talks get to the end of a talk and then we say, so well, uh, strains lacking UGA 35, DOL eighty one are sensitive to iron while strains lacking UJ three are not. Um, I guess I wanna end are there questions? And <laughs> the <of> talk is <laughs> <laughs>